Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that we can worship you. Lord, we can worship you on every day of the week. Our lives are a testimony to you every day of the week. It's not just Sunday, but it is a privilege that you give us to gather together in this place on Sunday mornings. Lord, we enjoy the fellowship, the encouragement. When we're down, others can lift us up. When we're when we're uplifted, we can reach down and help those who are struggling. I, I pray that we would take advantage of those opportunities today. Pray that you would help us as we open your word in Sunday school and as Pastor Steve opens the word in the main service and tonight. Pray that you would help us to have ears to hear, that we would be encouraged and challenged and convicted, and that we would leave our communal gathering together motivated and encouraged to live for you. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, but to get to 1 Peter 5, we're going to be jumping around 1 Peter a little bit and talking about a few other verses. But as we return to our study, I I do this from time to time, particularly when I've had an extended time off. As I mentioned last week, I had not taught in First Peter since November, so it's been quite a while. Here we are in the middle of February. And I look back to see how long have we been studying First Peter. And my first message, it was a introduction on background of First Peter, according to my notes, was August 7th, 2016. So it's been a while. I was surprised. I'm, I'm curious, how many of you were in the class, at least in August of 2016. Okay, most most of you here. Um, now, who can outline this sermon from that day in three points? I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. Um, I couldn't do that. So, it's been a great study. And as I look back over it, and I, again, I keep track of these things, and sometimes my numbering's off. But so far, we've had, I believe, 67 messages in First Peter. It give her take, like I said, sometimes I forget to turn the number over, but every week I write a new number so I can keep track of how many teachings it is. And um, we've so far gone through the first four chapters of the book, and I mentioned this last week, we're down to chapter five, which is just 14 verses. And we are in the home stretch, and we're going to be close to finishing this. But I haven't taught in a while, and in my Bible, I read from the New American Standard, when you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, therefore. In the ESV, it says, so, and some other translations do differently, but when I get to a verse and I see, therefore, it tells me that everything that preceded has some implications for what we're teaching. And so, when I see that, I wanted to make sure that we're on the same page, and so I'm going to do a little bit of a review this morning to set the table for why Peter is saying what he's saying when we get to the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5. And at any point, at any time, all the messages for 1 Peter are on the church website, so if there's anything you missed or you want to look at a particular verse, it's always possible for you to go back and see what's been taught But the paramount focus, as I've studied this book for years, and I'm I'm convinced is the case, the paramount focus of this book is a call to holiness. Now, it's in a particular context, but the ultimate issue is a call to holiness. I've read these verses over and over as I've taught, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 14 to 16, that's explicitly what is said. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, stay away from your sin the way you used to be. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That was the ultimate issue and Peter's call is not unlike every other chapter of the Bible. Everything in the Bible is calling us to holiness. But the believers to whom Peter originally directed this letter were in a difficult environment. He he was calling them to live holy, but he was cognizant of the fact that life did not make that easy. There were countless hurdles and temptations and trials that could pull them away from that relatively simple statement, be holy as God is holy. As we've gone through the book in detail, there are various clues that would tell us, for example, that the government was not always kind to believers. Yet in chapter 2, one of the exhortations is to be submissive. It's clear that many believers had terrible, what we would term working relationships, because there's an exhortation that even if your master is unreasonable, which means something other than just illogical, it means they're wicked and they're evil, you still submit, because that's all part of holiness. Many believers were married to unbelievers, and it appears that their lives were very difficult. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of pressures in the culture that particularly made it difficult for women who were married to unbelievers. It was not easy, and yet, Peter's direction, as with the other scenarios, is to submit. That's part of holiness. In the midst of that, the overarching example of all of this is Jesus. As he lays things out, he never tries to convince people that their circumstances are better than they think they are. He doesn't try and convince them that things aren't really bad. What he tries to do is he tries to give them the tools to live holy in spite of it. Which really is the same challenge for us. Our lives are challenging. That's not an issue, but how we react to those challenges It's what separates it from holy living and falling back into sinful practices. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 shows that part of holiness is practically living out our lives in such a way that people see and some unbelievers will actually turn and perhaps become believers. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And again, we've already talked about it, but he spells out how that looks in relation to the government, civil society, how it looks in the workplace, how it looks in your home life. No matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on, no matter how difficult things are, there is never a time when a believer has an excuse not to live holy. And 
perhaps more so when everything is falling apart and people can see that your life is hard and difficult, that's the opportunity when you can show a lost and dying world what the gospel looks like. And then as Peter kind of moves out of some of the specifics, in the middle of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, with some side roads, he really addresses this overarching theme of injustice, of unfairness, of persecution or mistreatment even when you don't deserve it. And there is a strong call to keep doing the right thing even if with your eyes it doesn't look like it's paying off. In fact, with your eyes, when you're doing the right thing, you're suffering even more. Peter, over and over, is trying to steer them away from a sinful reaction, which is a natural reaction. When you're being mistreated, when you're being treated unfairly, the natural reaction is to push back, to fight back. You say something bad about me, I say something bad about you. You push me, I push you. You insult me, I insult you. Take it from somebody that's done a lot of marriage counseling. If you've ever seen marriage counseling, the biggest hurdle I have is convincing people that they have a problem because they all know their spouse has a problem. (laughs) And the only reason I'm this way is because of them. And I'm only doing this because of them. That's the human way. And Peter says, no. The scriptures say, no. Jesus himself, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, a familiar verse, beginning at verse 43, familiar when I say it, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Peter's exhortations, again, are reflecting the reality that life is difficult, that the believers are suffering. Many of them are being persecuted for their faith. They're doing the right thing, and it doesn't seem to be paying off. And as we talked about it, persecution is not something that will never occur again. It's happening now in many places. could happen to us. And we need to be prepared and we need to prepare ourselves for that. And we need to understand that when we suffer for doing the right thing, it's okay. Verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing right rather than for doing what is wrong. And there's a lot of different things that I taught at the end of the chapter. There's some language that took us some time to explain. But the reality is, Peter's ultimate point is to keep a perspective on life. You can live holy as God is holy even when everything is unfair and even when everything's going wrong because at the end of the day because Jesus wins you win. This is temporary. One day all this is going to be gone away. 
But ultimately, even in the midst of hardship, for example, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, because of Jesus, we endure. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, for, for the will of God. That really, again, it's all the same. It's holiness is holiness is holiness. We have a diversity of ages in the room. Some of you are older than me by a few years. Some of you are younger than me by a few years. And yet none of us know when our days are over. We know people that have lived for a long, long time. We know people who have died young. I don't know how many days you have left. However many days you have left, don't live for the lust of men. Live for the will of God. That's it. And one of the ways we do that is in the context of our fellowship with each other. Again, Peter is trying to provide tools for this idea that walking as a believer in a sin-filled world with persecution and hardship is not easy. And he talks about the fact that we need each other for that. So if you look in the middle of chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. We're called not only to holy living but selfless living and corporate living. We can't live in this sin-filled world on an island. We have to encourage one another. We have to love one another. We have to serve one another. That's why being a part of a local fellowship is so critical. That's why the internet can never substitute for church. Now, praise the Lord for people who are shut-ins who can't get here. Somebody like my mom who will be able to hear the word preached today. She can't be here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that think, you know what, I'll just, I'll just stay away. I'm just going to watch the show. I'm just going to say I've done my part, but then avoid the messy stuff, which is dealing with sinners, which is what church is. And again, Peter wants us to understand there's no merit if you're suffering for the sin you do. Don't sin and think of yourself a martyr when you pay the penalty. But if you're suffering for Christ, it's a normal thing. It's going to happen. Don't get sidetracked. First Peter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening in you. In other words, this is what happens with God's people. He's testing us. He's growing us. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, being persecuted for your faith isn't a negative, it's a positive. You're going to learn, you're going to grow, it may be painful, but it's a good thing. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify 
God in this name. And then finally, at the very end, and this is sort of the final lead-in, it's the last message I taught, but it's most directly related, I think, to the therefore, that's in my Bible in the first verse. Peter uses some language that it took some time to dissect, but he's basically saying this, suffering for the will of God is just a necessary thing that we endure but don't feel like you're being mistreated because there's a judgment coming for unbelievers that's far greater. Beginning in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing right. Again, the big picture here is that the hardships that we endure are nothing. We're ultimately going to be with Christ. And as the world gets worse and worse and the consequences of sin are played out and one day there's a judgment, you won't envy unbelievers. If we go through hardships as believers, imagine what's going to happen to those who reject Christ. So that sort of brings us to the beginning of chapter 5. In the big picture scheme of things, the churches to whom Peter was writing were enduring hardships. The people in the church could legitimately say, that's not fair. Some of them at work, some of them at home, some of them from government treatment. They could legitimately say by an objective measure from our human capacity for reason, that is wrong, that's not fair. Yet in the midst of all the unfairness and the injustice and the hardship for following Christ, Peter said it's okay, keep doing it. In fact, be holy. Whatever you do, don't go back to your old way of reactions. You've got to follow Christ. Trust God. Follow the example of Jesus. Don't take your own revenge. Don't spend your energy fighting for your rights. Spend your energy living holy. Be an example to those who are mistreating you so that perhaps some of them might one day come to faith. Now, Because you've heard parts of this over and over, I don't believe anything I said today sounded new. You get the gist of it as I remind you of the things we've talked about. And it's relatively easy to understand what we're called to do. Don't sin, be holy. But this is hard teaching when it comes to living it. If anybody thinks, and I don't think any of you do, but if anybody thinks it's easy to live holy in a fallen world when you still occupy a bodily of flesh, I don't think you understand what holiness is. What Peter said is consistent with the rest of Scripture, but it's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard not to fight back. It's hard not to feel a sense of being aggrieved and entitled to being bitter and angry. It's hard to walk by faith, trusting in God who we can't really see, 
when we can see the hardships and the injustice and the oppressors and the people mistreating us with our eyes. We have to walk by faith, not by sight, but we're hampered by the fact that that's what we see. But it is possible, and it is commanded, and this morning, as I introduce this section of chapter 5, we're going to see something that I believe is important to us, but perhaps we don't always think about. I know I'm a pastor here, but most of you know, most of my Christian life, I haven't been a pastor. I was a lawyer. I was a church member. And I didn't necessarily think this way that I'm going to encourage you to think about the specifics of this chapter. Now, God has provided a multitude of resources to help you live the Christian life. And I would think about some of these. For example, I always in my mind, have known that the Holy Spirit is there for us to help us. As we navigate this world, we're not left to do it on our own. Jesus sent a helper to us. In John fourteen twenty six, the Holy Spirit is specifically referred to as the helper. Jesus was going away. He wouldn't leave us alone. So we have the Holy Spirit in us to convict us of sin and to help us understand the teaching of the word And to bring to remembrance the scriptures that we need to avoid temptation, to avoid sin. So God's provided the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit works through His Word. God's provided His Word to us. I saw Herb waiting for the bus and he was looking at the lost and found. And Herb in his simplicity, he was just pointing at the Bibles. There's more Bibles on that lost and found than some countries can have. And the people haven't missed them. Because why? If I missed my Bible, i got six more in my office. We're all that way. But it's a privilege to have the Word. Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's given us His Word to help us know where to walk, to keep from tripping and falling. So we have His Spirit. We have His Word. He's given us the gift of prayer, which we just did with one another. And individually in James 1.5, it's one of the first things that I knew to pray because this is the first book I ever heard taught, James, when I was a new believer, James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, not knowledge, but how do I navigate? Remember, he just said, consider it all joys when you encounter various trials. But he understands that sometimes we don't know how to count it joy. When we're living what Peter's talking about with bad marriages and bad jobs and bad governments, how do I do it? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. He's provided for us the Holy Spirit, his word, the gift of prayer. He's provided for us one another. I've already read and emphasized scriptures that talked about our duties to one another. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. This isn't just a lesson for pastors. Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And in that context of our fellowship, the way the fellowship's played out, of course, we understand is the gift of God and called the church. 
In fact, that's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25, we're commanded not to avoid church. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So God has given us all these resources, and if I spent time, I'm sure I could come up with other resources. You could too as you go through your Bible. But He's given us His Spirit. He's given us His Word. He's given us the gift of prayer. He's given us one another. He's given us the local church. And in the context of the local church, He's given us something else to help us live when life is hard. What is that resource? He's given you the elders of your church. He's given you the pastors. And the scriptures make it clear that God gives the elders and pastors to you to help you. Now over the next couple of times that I teach, I'm going to be delving into more detail 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. In fact, I'll go ahead and read it. You follow along with me. I'm going to read it to you. And I'm going to say a few more words by way of introduction. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Now, why am I taking the extra time to do all of this to talk about verses that are actually directed to the elders? Because I don't want you to think that the teaching here is for the elders and you can just don't worry about it. These verses clearly spell out direction requirements that must be fulfilled by the elders, including the elders at Lakeside. And I'm going to present the material in a way that I pray will bring clarity to you to understand what our roles are. But also it could provide greater accountability for us. Because if you see our behavior not lining up with what's here, certainly your prerogative to prayerfully approach us and say, I don't see this. I'm going to show you from the scriptures what you should see in our lives. What you should see in how we relate to you, how we interact with you. Now again, the Bible speaks a lot about elders and pastors. In fact, if I was looking for an explanation of who should be an elder or pastor, I wouldn't go to this verse first. Because this is talking about the duties and responsibilities and how they're carried out. It's not talking about the character and the talents and the God-given abilities of the person that's occupying the position. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, there's a clear listing of the character qualities 
of an elder. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." So if we were looking at what character, what abilities an elder has, I would take you to there. I'd also take you to Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 9. And you can mark these down and you can look at us as elders. And see what you think. For this reason I left you in Crete. Titus 1, 5-9, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sort of gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teachings, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So again, when you're looking at who becomes an elder, those are the verses that I would go to. They're very descriptive. They overlap. They're complementary. Sadly, many churches in America, if not most churches in the area, don't pick elders that way. They pick people based on longevity how faithfully they give, how much they serve. Are they a founding member of the church? Are they a founding family of the church? The Bible makes it clear. You pick elders. Actually, the Bible makes it clear God picks elders. But the identification of whether the person is somebody that God picked can be found there. But our text this morning is presuming that those criteria have already been met. And Peter is describing the way that those individuals who have those character qualities that are set apart by God to lead the church, he's describing how they're supposed to carry out their work. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. So as we go through this, you can imagine it's hitting me first. It hits Steve It'll hit Rig. Those are the three elders in the room. It'll hit Mike Mitchell, who's an elder intern, an elder in training. It'll hit all the elders of our church. And you have every right to expect that your elders will strive to live this out. Will we do it perfectly? Of course not. But this is the goal. And you're going to have a measuring stick for the life of the church here at Lakeside. I'm not throwing down a gauntlet or a challenge. I'm just telling you this is what the Word of God says. And if we as your elders aren't living this way, then by all means, approach us. Talk to us. Because this is God's command to us. But what you're also going to see, I pray, as we unfold this over the next couple of times, is that by God's direction to the elders, you see how much He cares and has concern for you. 
by God's direction to us, you can see God's care for his sheep. Because you're not our sheep. You're not our flock. You're his sheep and his flock. So, that was a long introduction. The next time I'm back, again, not this Sunday, the following Sunday, we'll dive in and we'll parse these words and you'll get to see something of the responsibilities in front of us. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I know that a review in many respects is by definition repetitive, but I pray that you will work in our hearts. Pray that you'll prepare us to live holy as you are holy. Lord, we can almost get numb to the words and yet all we have to do is look at our lives and realize how much we struggle to accomplish that seemingly straightforward task. Pray that the things that we've heard this morning will remind us of what we've already learned in our teaching from your word and will aspire to holiness regardless of the injustice and unfairness that we face in life. And I pray, Lord, that even now it will encourage us to pay attention to Pastor Steve's teaching, that we will be looking for what we can glean from your word that are going to help us be holy. Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another, that we would help one another, that we would function as the body of Christ as you intended so that you ultimately will receive the glory. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.